Good evening, everybody. This is uh, Patrick from the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona, and it is our treat to have Charles coming with us uh, this evening. He's going to be talking about his brand new book, Kennedy 35, and uh, we haven't received our signed copies quite yet, but they should be here very, very shortly. Right, Barbara? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll put a link in the comments field if you'd like to uh, purchase one. We don't have that many left, so don't delay if you'd like one. Um, and also, if you have questions, go ahead and put them in, and I will be happy to ask any of them uh, towards the end of the hour. So, Barbara, over to you. Thank you, Patrick. It's very nice to see you, Charles. He's in the U.S. Um, Charles is from the U.K. Actually, are you living in Scotland now? Or have you always lived in Scotland? No, I'm living in I'm living in London at the moment. Um, it's very good to see you, Barbara. I'm I'm in New York. I'm in a New York hotel room with a strange crown of thorns, which I can only apologize for. I had some technical problems with my phone, and this is the this is the best angle. Now it looks very nice, and I sort of like the whole crown aspect of it. After Especially all, it's quite it's it's quite Scottish. It's like a sort of reindeer or something. <laughs> oh, it really is right. So we're going to go on an international trip. We're going to be talking about Rwanda and Senegal and other places. But uh, just as a brief bio for those who haven't encountered Charles before, he's the author of twelve novels, including *A Spy by Nature*, *Typhoon*, *The Trinity Six, the Thomas Kell trilogy and the Box 88 series, of which this is book three. So actually, is this book 13 or is this book 12? It's book 12. Book it 12. is book 12. I actually, myself, I lost count the other day, but it is book 12. Got it. All right. He's also the screenwriter of the Gerard Butler action movie plane. And, you know, all around interesting spy master, often compared to John le Carre. British spy novels tend to be um, more less action and more thought-provoking, whatever you want to call it. And there's a lot of history in this book, which we will talk about. But I have to tell you, Charles, and this is an interesting thing. I think this book would have been better had it been entitled Avenue Kennedy. I saw that you I saw that you said that. My I um... did say that. And I'll tell you, it's because most Americans see the word Kennedy and they think they're off into another round of the Kennedy assassination theories. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, sure. Um, the, well, the, the the truth of it obviously is that uh, the kite, um, the the hero of these books, is is sent to Dakar in Senegal on the trail of a Rwandan war criminal who is living in Rue Kennedy, uh, number Tronsac, number thirty five in Dakar, um, and they're trying to extract him and, and and get him out so that he can face justice. Um, in fact, I'm ashamed to say that a, a, a very learned friend of mine in London the other day said to me. Did you call it Kennedy 35 because John F. Kennedy was the 35th president of the United States? And I said, what? I had no idea that he was the 35th president. Um, but uh, it's a it's an eye catching title. I think it's a title that you can talk about. It's an eye catch. It's a, it's a question. It's a title that makes you ask questions. It's not just um, uh, spy story or whatever. That's very true. And of course, you know, it would have been Rue Kennedy 35 would have been superior to Avenue 3. <laughs> I couldn't even get it right. No, I just thought it was interesting because, you know, I, I mean, you're, you're basically a UK author and therefore your books are published and titled in the UK. And I'm not sure that, you know, sometimes there are words or, um, you know, incidents or histories or something that don't fully translate, even though we are divided by a common language. And yeah. as I said, I think for most Americans, the word Kennedy evokes something completely different. 
Uh, Nonetheless, well, there are so many conspiracies and unresolved questions still about the Kennedy assassination. It is not, it is not, um, it is apropos in a way that Kennedy's on the title of this book. Yeah. No, I remember I, I wrote a book called The Man Between about six, seven years ago. Um, and my American publishers at the time, St. Martin, said they we want to change it because um, putting a female or a woman in, in the title was all the rage because of Girl on the Train and um, Gone Girl. And so it became the Moroccan Girl in the United States. And I've always regretted that. I always wish I'd stuck to my guns and just called it The Man Between because it now has two titles and I get sort of angry messages on Facebook going, hang on, I bought your book twice. Right. Um, or people who are excited, like I've written a new book and, it, and I haven't, it's just the same book with a different title. Well, there was indeed a time when every book was called the girl, the woman, the sister, the mother, whatever it all is. And, you know, I'm hoping that that's all passed. Um, but yeah, yeah. we'll see. Anyway, aside from, I, I wanted to mention the title because many of you looking at the title and watching this might indeed think that it was going to be a book about Kennedy. Um, and it's not, it's a book. <laughs> so another question for you, you are writing fiction, but you have some very serious and disturbing numbers in this book, some statistics. So would I be right in assuming that all of that you have you have looked up and those numbers are in fact true? You mean the Rwandan genocide? Yes. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, yeah, it's all true. There's a, there's a sort of note that I've written at the front of the novel um, which uh, sets out the, the the ghastly carnage of of 1994, a very brief season in in Rwanda, where the uh, Hutu minority set out to eliminate, really to um, to murder the the Tutsi majority, um, in part armed government of Francois Mitterrand. Not to say that they were um, it was they were plotting it, but but they certainly turned a blind eye, um, and the. This was one of the principal characters in Kennedy 35, I've called Augustine Bagaza, who's based on a sort of a, is a conflation of different people who worked at a radio station called Radio Mille Colline, Radio Thousand Hills, in Kigali, the capital of Rwanda. And they were, uh, men like Bagaza were, were getting on the microphones, getting on the airwaves and telling people to go out and to murder their Tutsi neighbors, to, um, to, to annihilate them, to wipe them off the face of the earth. And, and they... And they did do that with with machetes and knives and in some cases guns. Um, and many of the people, you know, listening to us now will, will remember this awful period in a very brief period in the mid 1990s. And I believe actually that it was your pres President Clinton, the greatest regret of his eight year administration was not doing more to stop the Rwandan genocide in its tracks. And the United Nations had forces there, but they stood aside and, and allowed the bloodshed to uh, to continue. Um, so, uh, and yeah, slowly over the last 25, 30 years, some of the perpetrators of this monstrous crime have, have been brought to justice, but but all too slowly. What, well, you, I don't want to give anything away, but what on earth was the motive of this people working at this radio station to basically call for genocide? What was in it for them? Um, it's a good question. I mean, it's just, you know, you look at what's going on in um, the Middle East at the moment or all, all parts of the world. There's just there's there's so much hate. There's so much uh, malice towards one's neighbor, whether it's based on, you know, religion or, or politics or um, I, I think 
historically the 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 Hutus in Rwanda and in that part of Africa had felt um, marginalized and um, uh, in, in government in uh, economically by the by the Tutsi minority. Um, and so it was just, yeah, it was a, a, a tribal war, really, um, brought about by the assassination of um, the Hutu uh, president of, of, of Rwanda, who was brought down by uh, the, the Tutsi freedom fighters, who are run by, uh, led by Paul Kagame, who is still in charge of Rwanda to the present day. But yeah, just a, a blood feud, tribal um, escalation, which, which, which got completely out of control. And also shows us that technology allows these kinds of things to have a megaphone and escalate social media. All the rest of it means that, you know, hate can spread. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I mean, it's a good, it's a good parallel because obviously in those yeah. 30 years ago, there was no Twitter, there was no Facebook. Exactly. And, yet there, and there was no television really in a lot of these parts of Rwanda, but people were tuned to their radios. They were getting information from their radios and they believed it in the same way that they believe what they hear on MSNBC or Fox News or the BBC or whoever is, I mean. I know, it's... people get into an echo chamber, Charles, and you know, they only hear what they want to hear. And I mean, we sit around every day and just marvel at, you know, the the things that people accept, you know, is true that, that aren't and wonder how in the world, you know, they let them, who still believe. And, yeah. and, you know, I mean, I'm trying to figure out the Colorado judge, for example, who said that Trump engaged in insurrection, but he could still run for president. I'm right. still trying to figure that one out. Yeah. Well, that's just that's factually true. The point is that that, you know, even when when things are proved to be true, somehow or other, there are people who some, who are either convinced that it doesn't matter or I don't know. I don't want to get into politics yeah. of today. But I yeah. did think it was interesting that your book has come out, you know, as the whole thing with Hamas has begun. And, you know, the reasoning behind Hamas, if you look at their statement about what they're doing, seemed to me to be quite similar to what you're talking about in this book. Yeah, no, just, I mean, Hamas is, is their intention is to annihilate uh, and to and to wipe Israel off the off the face of the earth, no, and that's quite clear. Not just Jews, but Christians. Their their mission is basically to wipe out everyone who is not of their, you know, their particular belief sect, whatever you want to call it. It's yeah. a much broader. Um, yeah. No, it's it's absolutely terrifying and and nihilistic in the same way that ISIS was nihilistic and and branches of yeah. Al Qaeda as well. It's a it's a and as you say rightly, this this stuff goes around the world and and is is amplified by social media and by ignorance and by i suppose you know one way is it's sort of my my um my enemy's friend is is my enemy or more, sorry my enemy's enemy is my friend um it, people will will pick a side based on what the other guy is, is thinking so if if putin sees that biden is supporting a certain policy then he'll oppose it or uh, it, it's that's the, the way people think about these things. They don't go into the detail. They just take a political position based on their their friends and allies and, and um, co-political conspirators. They're not really thinking things through. If, if the people who are supposedly giving Hamas a free pass actually really stopped to think about what Hamas stood for and what they had done, uh, they would uh, very quickly change their opinion. And that they themselves are actual targets. You know, just yeah. because Israel was the first target, you know, I don't know why people can't sort of, you know, understand that, in fact, 
the next in line would be if they were yeah, successful yeah. there. Yeah. It's incredible. I guess what it really proves is that mankind has never really moved beyond the tribal. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And and from, uh, I mean, I'm in New York now, but I live in London and looking at the United States over the last seven, eight, 10 years, you know, it's so polarized and so poisonous and, and there's so much um, ignorance, so many lies. Uh, it's, uh, you know, we worry about America. We do. We, we, um, and, you should, and yeah. you know, I mean, you can look back at, you know, other aspiring dictators and recognize that anger is that thing they weaponize in order to gain power and try to keep power. And, yeah. you know, and they foster it. I mean, there's no effort at conciliation or, you know, cooperation or whatever. It's all about stoking anger in order to gain personal power. But anyway, we are in 1995, where in fact, Lachlan Kite is a fledgling agent with Box 88. So for anyone who hasn't read the first two, why don't you tell us a bit about Box 88? Because there's all, it seems to me kind of a sine qua non of spy novels that there's always some agency, you know, that is... Um, running whoever the operatives are. Um, is, yeah. I mean, do you think that that's a, a tradition, especially the British spy novel? Do you know what? I, I wasn't really aware of the tradition in, in, until I wrote Box 88. And then obviously I thought about Mission Impossible, you know, the Mission Impossible unit or, uh, um, I mean, to, to explain to your, to, to, to people who, who are watching and listening, Box 88 is, an, is, an, is a fusion of, of, of CIA and MI6, of MI5 and FBI, of NSA and GCHQ, the sort of best of the best, um, working together under the radar, so to speak, with very little oversight and a lot of money, doing uh, operational stuff that they would otherwise need a, a huge amount of bureaucracy and box ticking and meetings and planning uh, to go ahead and do. And I'm not interested in writing about meetings and bureaucracy and, and ministers and cups of tea and rivalries in the in, in the office space. Um, so Box 88 allows me to, the freedom to get out into the field as it were quicker. I mean, sometimes it's, I think, slightly incorrectly described in some reviews as a, as a black ops um, service. I never really imagined it like that. But it's funny, when I was planning Box 88 five years ago, I was having lunch with a friend who used to work in MI6 and I said to him, I'm planning this, this, I've got this idea. What do you think? Um, that there's this sort of elite squad of people within MI6 and CIA who are, who are secretly working. He said, I was convinced there was something like that when I was working there. So I wasn't hopefully not too far away from the truth, but it's, um, but it, it's really just, to, as I say, to allow me the, the, the freedom to get away from the bureaucratic wranglings and the, and the political oversight, which, which to me sort of gums up a lot of stories of that kind. Well, you know, this is a spy novel, but there um, are a number of books that are more military fiction, and they have the same thing. I mean, Tom Clancy has the campus. James Rollins writes about Sigma Force. Vince Flynn, I can't remember. Um, you know, there are all these, um, and it, it always seems to be a need for some sort of more flexible, you know, as you point out, unit. Um, yeah. Avoids I it's also to do with... with um you know reality that if if one was absolutely true to the reality of of, a, of an mi5 operation in london um or true to the business of a, uh, a foreign intelligence officer working for mi6 recruiting in um, beijing for example um you you probably wouldn't be able to have as much fun as a as a writer and therefore the reader would not have as much fun it would it would it would be slowed down by uh due process due, due process in america 
Um, and so you have in Le Carre, you have the circus. In McHeron's novels, you have Slough House. Um, in mine, you have Box 88. It's just, it's to do with sort of world building. So the reader, he or she knows where they are. They know who the principal characters are. They know what the rules of that um, service are, um, even though there is not a cat and hell's chance of any of them existing, apart from possibly the circus and maybe Box 88. But um, it's, as I, I somebody very wise, I forget who it was at the beginning of my career said, Charles, it's not what happens, it's who it happens to. So it's the it's the characters, it's the protagonists, it's the it's the George Smiley's, it's the Jackson Lambs, it's the Lachlan Kites that people are are interested in, and that they go back to book after book after book. Um, and as long as the sort of grammar of that world is 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 correct and 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 um, logical within its own um, parameters, then I think that they don't mind. Because when I mean the spy writer is never going to be true uh, to what really goes on. It's interesting that you don't mention James, you know, the Ian Fleming and James Bond, um, and you know the whole apparatus around, you know, Bond with you know all the people there. Um, yeah, well, I mean, Bond is based that in part upon his real service, you know, in the war when he was in. Um, I'm trying to remember what the we had the OSS, and I'm trying to remember what the British. He was in naval naval intelligence during the war, and, yeah. and there's a, a very good new biography of, of Fleming is written by Nicholas Shakespeare, which is probably has come your way. I think it's been published. I don't know if it's been published in the states yet, where he goes into some considerable detail about just how involved Fleming was in, in intelligence work in, in the immediate years before the war and during the war. Um, he was much more of a spy than John Le Carre ever was, um, right. which is quite interesting, and yet. Carrie's books are far more realistic about that world. I mean, Fleming's, as you would have heard this a thousand times, but Bond isn't an intelligence officer. He's not what MI6 would recognize as a spy. He's an assassin um, with a very, in fact, I, uh, Barbara, look, I'm drinking a martini. Excellent. I... <laughs> um, he's got a very good ex expense account and uh, <laughs> he travels alone and, and, and um, everybody knows that he likes his martini shaken, not stern. He's, he's the world's worst spy, but, um, but a fabulous, uh, great world building, great villains, Money Penny, M, Q, Felix Leiter, the CIA guy, you know, he's always like one step behind, you know, but helps out in the end. Um, pe people, you know, they love those books just, and then they obviously love the, the movies. Well, you know, let's, let's remember that Ian Fleming was basically a fabulist. I mean, that's why he was good at the war work that he did do. That's why he wrote the kind of novels that he did. Did you watch the, um, the documentary, the interview with John le Carre that has just aired over here? Oh, what the, um, on Apple TV, mm -hmm. the, the Pigeon Tunnel. Do you know what, Barbara, I, um, I think I got to a point where I, I had sort of had a, I'd had a complete kind of high tide of John le Carre and, and I felt as though there was nothing more that I could learn about him or read about him. Um, and I, so I, I haven't yet watched it, but I, um, I've heard it's very good. I've heard it's, it's very good. It's certainly no kind of a whitewash. I mean, I, I read, I read both the biography and the memoir that he then wrote because he wasn't happy with the biography. And, yeah. um, and, and what I admired the most in the memoir, we're digressing here, but why not? What I <laughs> admired most in the memoir was his lack of bitterness about his father, who was, you know, by all accounts, a truly horrendous person. Yeah. Um, and without whom, Lacari probably could never have become, you know, the Lacari that it was. And they also point out that um, 
you know, Lakari was a serial um, adulterer. He, he was, yeah. you know, that was, and, and he says in this documentary that he was able to feed his constant, um, the novels and the whole thing by his own undercover life. He was not, as you point out, a spy for more than, you know, a very short yeah. while, but he mm -hmm. lived, he lived a personal life undercover and those same emotions and that same need for cover and everything is what helped him, you know, write his novels. Does that does the philandering element come out in the documentary? Does he talk about that? A little. Um, mm. It's much more about his father. Actually, the documentary may be more about his father than about anything else, and uh, it's it's very well done. Um, and it's, I think it's sort of interesting to see him. And you know, I have to tell you, this is really funny because you know I've known Lee Child forever, and he has his particular voice. And I was, for some reason. And an earlier interview with John LaCurry came out and I was watching it and I thought, Lord, he sounds like Lee. And my husband walked by and he said to me, why are you talking to Lee? And, you know, <laughs> their, their voices, their, their everything is, is almost identical, which I find kind of, you know, because Lee's from Birmingham. I mean, there wasn't any, any, but there's a particular yeah. British voice intonation, elocution, whatever you want to call it, that the two of them share. And I didn't see it as much in the documentary because he's older. Um, yeah. You yeah. know, I he, mean, was, he was one of the world's great talkers, John Le Carre. He, he oh, was yeah. uh, incredibly fluent and wonderful vocabulary, no hesitation, always had the, the exact phrase just at his fingertips. Um, highly, highly intelligent man. Um, do you know what? I mean, there's often this, this, this talk, as, as you have been this evening talking about. Um, his father, this kind of villain of Dickensian proportions. But I think the key, the key person in David Cornwall's life was his mother, because his mother abandoned him when he was a child. And, I, and as anyone will tell you, you know, that's, that's the, pretty much the worst thing that can happen to anyone. And I think the searching for the sort of replacement mother figure. Um, he acknowledges it, that, actually. Yeah. He does. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. But, you know, in sympathy with his mother, I'm not sure how anyone could have coped you know, with the father, no. I don't know. I mean, the question would be not why she left the father, but why she didn't take the boy with her. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, that's that's really the the key question there. Well, anyway, um, having wandered all about, there has been an interesting, some interesting new arrivals in the spy genre, which I think um, there's a woman named Petoniak who has written the Helsinki Affair, for example, which is really mm -hmm. very good. There were a couple of debut spy novels last year. Um, Joe Cannon reliably is still producing. John, you know, Dan Festerman. I mean, it's wonderful to see because, you know, as you know, genres in fiction tend to come and go. And, yeah. you know, and, and maybe it's in response in part to the mess that the world is in. But I've noticed that there is um, a sort of resurgence in the, in the spy novel, some yeah. of which is, is more in the Lakari tradition and some of which is more in an action you know, tradition. Yeah. So funny enough, I'm, I'm being interviewed by Joe Cannon tomorrow night here in New York. One of my totally favorite people. I know yeah. you are. And I was going to steal him for this until I saw that <laughs> I had stolen him already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, I'm, I'm very honored. And I've met him once before. And he's just a completely charming guy and obviously just a wonderful writer. And I also know Dan a little bit. We worked on a David Simon TV series together. Um, and I know how smart he is and what a fantastic writer he is and also a fantastic screenwriter. Um, it's interesting. Spy spy fiction is um, is, is, is its own little baby, and it sort of exists um, 
somewhere to the edge of, of sort of pure crime, pure mystery detective novels or whatever, um, and uh, knocks up against the door of sort of quote unquote literary fiction. Um, but one of the reasons I wrote the Box 88, I am writing the Box 88 series, is because after the fall, fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, there wasn't an awful lot of spying left to do. And if there isn't an awful lot of spying left to do, then the contemporary spy novel is in a lot of trouble, because what do you write about? Um, I mean, really the only person who was functioning as a, as a, sort of in a meaningful way on, on my side of the Atlantic in the 1990s was, was Le Carre, and who, who had established his name, made his name in, in the 1960s. Um, and I had, this, I had this frustration after the Kell trilogy and after writing The Man Between with uh, what I call the mobile phone problem, that the mobile phone was, was just getting in the way or technology was getting in the way of telling a contemporary spy story because you always had to be conscious of the fact that a, a character, a protagonist had a phone, could call for help, could look at a map, could look something up, could be bugged, could be blown up. You know, the phone was was controlling the narrative to a certain extent. And you see this all the time in in, in any television or, or film drama about about the world of espionage or about anybody at all. It all comes down to the metadata and finding someone and tracking them on their phone or they don't have a signal, et cetera, et cetera. So I said to my editor, Julia Wisdom at HarperCollins in London, I said, what I'd love to do is go back to the 1990s, which is the, the decade that the spy novel forgot, and, and write a series of, of books about a young spy who's, who's recruited really at the end of the Cold War, you know, who's recruited just as the, as the wall is falling down. And, and what did he get up to in that decade? And, and Julia said that she thought it was a great idea, not least because of, there's no mobile phones, there's no Google, there's no satellite you know, um, surveillance or very limited. Um, and I would be freed up to go back to kind of Moscow rules. But she said it was a shame that I, you know, I'd made my name uh, as a 21st century contemporary British spy novelist, and you know, why give up that modernity, if you like? So that's why Box is, is, is uh, you know, I thought, well, I'll do both. I'll do, I'll do the 1990s and I'll do the present day, and we'll see how this young spy, this young man, Lachlan Kite, changes over a period of 30, 40 years. So the idea is that Kennedy is 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 um, Avenue. We'll call it Avenue Kennedy for tonight. Thank Avenue you. Kennedy is the third in a in a series of what I hope will be sort of seven or eight books. Um, so sort of soup to nuts, you know, Berlin Wall through 9-11, right up to um, hopefully a, a not a second Trump presidency. <laughs> well, now here's a here's a really cheery note for you, which is then increasingly I have read not in fiction, but in, you know, news and so forth, because the digital world is so easily hacked and whatever that spies are actually going old school again they yeah. are going back to drop boxes and you know meeting with newspapers on benches and all. so yeah. i think you know a really fascinating part of what you want to do is that you could show that in the present the digital spy age in some degree some of those tools are going to revert back to the old you know the old spy technology which yeah well it's i mean it's it's good for it's good for real life contemporary intelligence work because as you say, they're not getting caught. They, they're, they're reverting to Moscow rules. They're using yeah. letter boxes and so forth. And, and um, But it's also good for, for writers because it becomes much more personal. Um, I mean, a good example of this is in the, the book that precedes Avenue Kennedy, um, Judas 62, where you see Kite as a 20, I think he's 22 year old, 
who sent into post-Soviet Russia to extract a chemical weapons scientist from a city called Voronezh, which is a couple of hours south of Moscow. And he gets into considerable difficulty there, um, trying to persuade this man to come out because he refuses to fly and so forth. Um, and if, if he was there now, he would just get on WhatsApp or Signal or whatever and send a message to London going, I'm in a spot of bother, can you come and help? But because it's 1993, he can't make a he can't even make a phone call because the only way to make an international phone call from Voronezh 30 years ago was to go to the post office and and to book the phone call um, and then the entire KGB would be listening on the line and they would know immediately that kites a spy um, so I had a lot of fun with that with in Judah 62 with this old-fashioned tradecraft he um, he he doesn't he, he doesn't have a map on his phone he he, he can't call for help he um, he has to survive on his wits. And that's much more interesting for, for readers, I think, to see a, a person, an individual, a hero under pressure and having to work things out as they go along. I mean, it's if if a person could save the day by making a phone call you know, or they can identify somebody using a satellite that's owned by Elon Musk, it's just it's just not as exciting. Um, I think my, my, my basic theory on this is that technology is fantastic on the screen. It's really exciting the, the the computers and the and the and the images and the um, the whip pans and the CCTV and you know all these great directors like um, Greengrass and you know everybody they 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 make the best of the technology but on the page um, the the old school uh, intelligence work the, the gum shoeing around the recruitment the the as you say the park benches that's what people love and that's why um, for example Joe Cannon's books are so evocative and so splendid because he's he doesn't have to deal with uh, these things you know <laughs> no it's absolutely true but you know here's an interesting thought you know you can use as you're moving forward you can use old school stuff to thwart the new school stuff in your books you know i mean i think i think it's fascinating that you know you could have for example somebody threatened by digital hatching and then uh, hacking and then have to go out and resort to the older spy methods, you know, to work yep. it out from there. You could really have the best of both worlds. Yeah, but it, I mean, I, as, as you were saying, digital hacking, um, I, I, and earlier in the conversation, I, I was thinking about, um, we were talking about the effect of social media and so forth. Yeah. And one of the great problems that's coming down the line, it's all, it's already here, but it's gonna be terrible in America next year is, yeah. is fake videos yeah. and, right. you know, images showing Biden saying or doing something that he hasn't done or, or Trump or, um, and people will look at it and they'll believe it with the sort of confirmation bias. And trying to write about that, trying to describe a fake video is is a is a is a hard thing to do as a, as, as a novelist because it relies so much on a, on a on a on a series of visual images. Um, but yeah, I think you're absolutely you're you're, you're basically right that um, you could have a very low tech spy um, solving high tech problems in in the present day. By going back into uh, the, you know the old the old ways the the sort of samurai you know. right well we've given us um, in um, Avenue Kennedy thirty five uh, we have <laughs> given it the Rwanda genocide background but in point of fact uh, we're in Dakar Senegal and I've actually been to Dakar Senegal. oh have you I have um, oh. years ago when the Queen Mary two made its maiden voyage. My husband's mother was determined that we would be on the ship, which indeed we were. 
And um, it actually had a gunship escort because it was right after 9-11. And there were concerns that the Queen Mary II was going to be as obvious a target as, let's say, the World Trade Building. So off we go. And it sailed from Florida to the Bahamas and then straight across the Atlantic to Dakar, Senegal. For wow. reasons I have never understood. And um, there were, have you been there? Um, uh, yeah, I went to Dakar twice. I've actually also been on the Queen Mary. Okay, was, well, yeah. if you if you recall, there is a um, an island where the slave trade, yeah, in the harbor, and you know the I mean people often forget that it was Africans who actually covered captured other Africans and brought them, and then it was the Arab traders, you know, who who did all anyway. Everybody wanted to go and see the slave island and there are like 2,600 passengers on the ship and there's a little ferry that holds, was supposed to be like 500 people, but instead something like 1,100 people piled on it. And I can still remember looking out there at the gunship and thinking how lucky we were to have it because when the ferry sank, the gunship would come and rescue us all <laughs> out of the harbor. You know? so, yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, were you there? I was. I was in Dakar the first time I went. It was October, um, so uh, two was years ago. Was... Two years ago, almost of the day, and it was. It was. I, I've never been so hot in my life. It was incredibly humid. Um, you know that sort of heat where yeah. you 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 go outside and within three minutes you're just exhausted with with, with sweat and you go into an air conditioned room and you, you lose another liter of, of fluids. It was. Um, but that all fed into the novel, into into Avenue mm -hmm. Kennedy 35. It was um, the sort of the the otherness of of Dakar, if you like, the kind of not this this quite inexperienced young man, Kite, who's, who by when this book starts is still only 24 or 25, goes out there um, with his girlfriend with sort of backpacker cover, and they go to a sort of seaside uh, hostel, and then they go into the city itself, um, and they're. The, he joins a team of Box 88 operatives who were looking for Bagaza, this, this Rwandan genocide. Um, but the heat is the is the big problem and it affects the technology that they have to go back to that. You know, he's got earpieces, but they stop working because of the sweat and the batteries fail and the radios and all the rest of it. Um, but it's an amazing city. And and I, I there's no way that I could have written the book without going there, I think. You know, it's it just, um, right. I always find it's better to, to go to the places, to to walk the to walk the ground, to eat the food, smell the air. I mean, I, there's a passage in Kennedy Thirty Five about uh, contemporary New York because um, I was here last year, and 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 I was really struck by the unbelievable smell of um, marijuana on the on, in Greenwich Village, and so everywhere you, you just smell weed, and that's a new phenomenon. Um, so that's gone in the book too. There's a contemporary section in in, in New York, but you but. I would never have known that if I hadn't come here, and I, would, I and I would not have been able to describe Dakar had I not gone out. And and oh, um, I totally agree with you. I mean, but you obviously wrote. I mean, it was a terrible problem for novelists during lockdown. And I will tell you, I'm going to be talking to her on December second. That <clears throat> excuse me, Val McDermott has written a new book called Past Lying, in which she really lays out how stringent the rules for British lockdown, the UK lockdown, were. It reminded me in a way, of the village of Einsham, which is a medieval village. They decided to quarantine itself ruthlessly to keep the Black Plague from spreading, and, you know, heroically so. 
But, yeah. you know, I it was hard to understand because lockdown here in Arizona was hard. I mean, it, it didn't really even exist. It was. Oh, really? Know, oh, no. Heck no. We we wandered. I mean, it wasn't even an interruption in our lives. Yeah. You know, the I, mean, I think it was uh, it was the same in Senegal, actually. I was there. I was there at the sort of tail end of the, you know, the, of the pandemic, if you like. And they because of the heat, basically, the heat in, in Scottsdale and the heat in Dakar is going to burn off this nasty little virus before it's got a chance to, to get going oh. but in in damp old london and glasgow we were we were pretty terrified of it and and um and sent to our rooms for a considerable period of time but i think the thing the thing that i never quite understood the absolute rage against boris johnson and some of the you know other privileged people who broke lockdown until i read val's book and recognized how you know, people really did try to obey these very stringent rules and the penalties that were. No, no, the Brits. Involved. So the, the Brits basically are quite um, biddable and and conservative and 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 yeah. law abiding, uh, much more than the French and much more than the Americans. I mean, I if, if if somebody says it's 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 for the best, you must do this, then we we tend not to make a fuss. We go fine. And there was this great sense of um, kind of national unity around the the, exactly. the NHS, the National Health Service. And and we used to clap every, I think it was a Friday night, you know, you go out on your doorstep and you'd clap the NHS. And Boris Johnson was very dangerously ill in hospital with COVID. And we, you know, at that time, bizarrely, we were all very concerned for him. Um, but yeah, the, the, I'm sure you'll talk more about this with Val, but, but to then discover that the whole thing was they weren't obeying their own rules and they were telling us what to do and and, and with a sort of tongue in their cheek you, you feel uh you feel humiliated you feel angry i yeah i mean it was so clear why you know that the, here again when i say you know we are divided by a common language but our experiences you know can be quite different in arizona the, it, it really is because we have so much space you know, I mean, you know, we have enormous amounts of space, so there was no reason why we couldn't go out, you know, walking at night or go to work, yeah. or whatever it all is. But anyway, we digress. Let's go back and talk about your two villains, because it's pretty hard to imagine two more ghastly people than, um, yeah, well, you tell us about it. I think Grace, I mean, I really, she's really ruthless. And, you know, you must have had a lot of fun writing her, even though she's horrifying to read. Yeah, Grace Mavinga. I'm glad. I'm glad she landed for you, Barbara. I mean, I had great difficulty with her to explain to 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 people. Um, in the 1995 section of Kennedy 35, Kite is in Dakar and he's on the trail of 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 this genocidaire, but he's going around with a young Congolese woman uh, called Grace Mavinga, who as his sort of mistress girlfriend, and their their hope is that they'll get a, a diplomatic passport and and come to the united states and, and and take on a new identity and live happily ever after the sort of casablanca type you know scenario um and in the present day narrative um grace has sort of reinvented herself as a uh money launderer and and sort of criminal mastermind um and is somebody of of great wealth and um no moral scruple whatsoever and utterly ruthless um, and I was really having trouble writing her uh, because one so rarely meets somebody like that, you know, <laughs> in your daily life, you don't go to a dinner party and meet a Congolese money launderer. Um, and I, my family had a terrible sort of tragedy early this year. We had a bereavement and, and my wife and I, we, we, we went to a really beautiful hotel in Mauritius, um, just for sort of 10 days of R and R and sort of, you know, just recalibrate and, and recharge batteries and so forth. And in this hotel, 
there was an amazingly beautiful and amazingly glamorous, very, very well-dressed South African, black South African woman um, who I got to know and, 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 and talk to um, in, in the course of the holiday, in the way that you sort of, you know, you lean over to the next door table and she was with her husband and I was with my wife. And, um, and although this woman obviously was a million miles away from Grace in terms of her personality and her backstory and her uh, political, social, moral outlook, nevertheless, she was in my mind exactly how I'd imagined Grace to be, just extremely beautiful, glamorous, um, uh, and had sort of come from, had come, both women really had come from nothing. This uh, woman in the hotel had come from a township in South Africa and um, and had sort of got themselves into a sort of European American lifestyle and were enjoying it. Um, so she was telling me all about, you know, the, sh the, the, the shoes she wears, the Jimmy Choo's, the where does she get her clothes, the moisturizer, how does she do her hair? So all of the all of the details about Grace Mavinga's 21st century lifestyle, the, you know, the, the, the massages and the, all the rest of it were, were partly from this, this amazing woman that I met and, and remained in contact with after we came home from Mauritius. Um, but you know, that's always the fun, you know, building a proper three-dimensional, especially female character is, is, is challenging, but also hugely rewarding. I mean, for you as a woman to say that, I'm, I'm really pleased. Well, I'm sorry, that's the dogs who've just come home. Um, what did you call her? She has a, a sort of a code name for the people who are going to try to take her down. And I'm trying well, to- she's originally called, she's originally called Lady Macbeth. That's it. Yeah, right. yeah which, which is a sort of fairly obvious um, code name that they've come up with because she's um, she's in control of her of her partners, let's put it that way. She's the she's the brains, she's the ruthlessness, she's the sort of the the the, the callous uh, encourager of of dastardly deeds. So it's a good, it's a good code name. It is a good code name. Um, I have to say, without any spoilers, that I like the way Charles wraps this book up. Um, very satisfying. Um, let's go back to poor Martha. What did she have when she is there in Senegal? Did she get malaria? Because, I mean, she is really ill. Um, yeah. which is part of the problem that, you know, Kaida is facing when he's, I mean, she's there since, well, she, She's not actually part of Box 88, right? She's his girlfriend? Well, she's sort of what they call conscious. So um, she's okay. in Judah 62, the previous book, she goes, she accidentally ends up in Russia. Um, and so they, they end up working together, Kite and Martha. So, so Michael Strawson, who's, who's Kite's boss, who's ex-CIA, who runs Box 88, he knows Martha well, and he trusts her. And when he sends Kite to Dakar, he says, well, why don't you take your girlfriend? And then you'll have perfect cover. You'll be just a couple right. of young travelers on the beach. But as you say, on that first night when they're staying at the guest house, waiting for instruction, so to speak, she, I mean, in my imagination, she had a, a peanut or something from the, from the bar, which a fly had touched and, um, and she gets very, very sick. Um, and I, I basically th think she had dengue fever. And so she's hospitalized and so forth. And so Kite, while he's trying to, he has to join the team that's going after Bagaza, but at the same time, he's very, very worried about Martha because she's dangerously ill. Yeah. And so he has a friend from his school, school days, a guy called Eric Appia, who's local Senegalese, um, who has already actually been out to see them at the guest house. And he says, Eric, please look after Martha while I go off. And he pretends he's got to interview a politician and be a simultaneous translator. He lies to his friend Eric about what he's really out there for. So that all of that um, relationship stuff between Kite and Martha, I think, adds a an extra layer of complexity and 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 um, 
psychological uh, texture texture to 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 the books. Um, so it's not just it's just not just operational, but it's personal. Very personal. I mean, I was really worried about her. So in 1995, here we have um, Kite with Martha um, and trying to bring Augustine Bagaza um, to some kind of justice. And then 28 years later, we have um, the afterburner of, of all of that. Um, who was the journalist, Lucien Michael Cablion, or whatever his name is? Cablin, Cablin, yeah. Cablin, is that it? I was trying to work out what his nationality was so I could figure out how to pronounce his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I hadn't thought about that. I mean, to me, he's always Cablin, but yeah, I guess he could be Cablion. Yeah, it was because of Dakar. Um, he sort of inspired, I mean, there's a person I've never met and don't know very much about, uh, but Patrick Radden O'Keefe, is it O'Keefe or Keefe, who, who's written and uh, so many interesting books about the IRA and, and um, the uh, Sackler family. Um, he, he, Cablin is partly inspired by, by him and he has a, hugely successful uh, podcast, you know, internationally successful podcast about uh, intelligence matters, political matters and so forth. And he has um, been in touch with a French intelligence officer from that time, from the 1990s, who has said to him, bad things went on um, and uh, rules were broken and people died and uh, lies were told. Sorry, there's a New York siren going on. Um, and so Kablin has got his teeth into this, the bone of this, this story, this conspiracy, and he wants to tell the world about it. He wants to tell the world that in 1995, a secret um, off the books Anglo-American spy agency went to Dakar to, well, he thinks murder uh, a Hutu war criminal. And so Kite, present day Lachlan Kite, who's now running Box 88, needs to get control of this story get control of this man Kablin as quickly as possible so he comes to New York to to deal with him let's put it that way right so you do show in the story that in your story anyway that the French realized that they um failed a lot of a lot of people and many things that they were in part responsible for all the awful things that happened and um I thought I thought you did well you know trying to to have them admit accountability, you know, regardless. Um, I don't want to go into it because then we get towards the end of the book, but Fournier is an interesting character, you know, trying to get to grips with that. And I mean, it's a constant problem that we have, you know, should we have been in Afghanistan, you know, should we do this? Should we ever have invaded Iraq? You know, I mean, yeah. you know, it's, um, it's so difficult to make decisions on the ground and so often, you know, things that we decide have unintended consequences or unforeseen consequences. Yeah. Well, it know. goes back to what we were saying at the beginning of the conversation that That's right. if, if your friend, your, if your ally um, does something that's morally reprehensible or illegal, you're more likely to give them a free pass or to ignore it, um, to, 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 to yeah. throw it under the carpet than you are if your if, if you're political or social uh, enemy does something that you disagree with because then it's open season um and we've all been guilty of that you know the american uh, intelligence infrastructure and political system and, and and the brits and the french too have, have made grave mistakes as well as doing you know great things too um and fournier is is yeah is dealing with a, a sort of miserable period in in, in uh, what, a moment in french political life where they 
where they gave a free pass to to a genocidal regime really and, right. and armed them and in some cases allowed them to come to france and make new lives and live under new identities and um and yeah and, and lied about it um i mean the book doesn't go into it in huge detail but um but it's but it's something that i hope that if people are interested in it that they'll investigate further well, I like the fact that you brought national accountability, you know, into the story. And yeah, you're right. People can investigate it. I don't want to keep you too long because I know you have a dinner engagement. Patrick, you want to pop up and see if we have any questions or do you have anything you'd like to ask yourself? This is my moment when I'm like, you know, directing the play. I love it. <laughs> there he is. Wow, fascinating discussion, though. I've really been enjoying listening to it. Um, we do have some questions. Let's see here. Um, oh, yeah, Tony from Romania is tuning in tonight. He says, um, okay, uh, greetings from Romania. I have 11 of your books. Love the Kel, Box 88, and Milius series. Any chance of a Kit Carradine book soon? And then he says uh, he wants you to pick three books for your desert island. Wow. He's probably one of about only three people who liked Kit Carradine. He was the hero of Man Between. Some people loved that book and some people didn't like it. Um, I was very fond of it. It's a sort of Eric Ambler homage to um, the sort of spy novels of yesteryear. Um, I think it's unlikely that Carradine will come back. Um, I, When I wrote The Man Between, I thought this guy could run and run. I, I had sort of ideas of a series, but the, the book didn't quite work, particularly over here, actually, in the States. So I'm afraid to, to say to Tony that it, there won't be any more. Um, my Desert Island books would be um, Arthur Miller's biography, Time Bends. I always think it's just a magnificent book. Um, I would have to take Smiley's People by John le Carre. Um, and, oh God, I don't know. Uh, what about Jane Eyre? I always loved Jane Eyre. Why not? All right, let's see. Uh, Hart, Hart Hansen asks, have any of your kids read your books? And if so, do they look at you any differently? <laughs> I know Hart. That's very good of him to have watched and sent it. I want to say hi to him too, and we miss you. <laughs> um, Hart, actually, funnily enough, my, um, my son, Stanley, who's now 19, when he was about 16, he read The Trinity Six, my thriller about the Cambridge spies, because he was doing a sort of spy... Um, uh, fiction thing for for his English class. So he so he, had to, he read Journey into Fear by Eric Ambler, The Spy Who Came In from the Cold by Le Carre, and and Trinity Six by me. So like no pressure. <laughs> um, and he he was he was kind of fairly inarticulate about it. I mean, look if you if there's sex in that book, and I think there is sex in that book, you probably don't want to be reading it if you're the child of the author. <laughs> so maybe he just. That's the thing that he remembers more than anything was that daddy was writing about relations with women or something, and, and that's <laughs> that's the end of it, you know. But um, I don't know if that's Hart's experience too. Good question. Uh, remind me at the end of this to say something else about the documentary. The uh, the liquor one. Yeah, um, because I I said earlier that I thought a huge amount of it was. Um, about his father, but the other was, and I, I'm having a senior moment, the, you know, the most obvious of the Cambridge, the Cambridge spies. Who's the guy that went to Russia? Philby? Yeah, Philby. Isn't it yeah. Philby, wasn't he? Anyway, a lot of, a lot of the Lacare documentary 
is about Kim Philby dissecting who he was and why he did what he did. And it's, I think it's a fascinating excavation of his character and actually why people do that kind of thing. Why, why would that, why would he have in fact been one of the Cambridge spies? You know, I mean, I thought it was brilliantly done. Yeah, no, I must go home and watch it. I, I, I just had, had, had too much, too much Lacare over an intense period of time. As I said, it's, it's really not so much Lacare. It's, it's other people that I think are particularly fascinating. But mm. the Kim Vilby parts are, are really eye-opening. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, with, um, with Blunt and Burgess, there was always the theory that because they were, um, because they were homosexual, they were always at odds with, with the mother, with the mother country, with the with the United Kingdom, because homosexuality was illegal, um, and so you, there was nothing really to betray because you knew that the the state uh, held you in contempt and would imprison you for your sexuality, for your um, everyday feelings and, and and attitudes and activities. Um, that always was quite convincing to me. I think I wrote about that in Trinity Six mm -hmm. with Philby. Yeah, I mean, I think Lacari sees a parallel there because they both had monstrous fathers, um, and they're almost sort of opposite sides of the same coin. And that Philby went one way and Lacari went the other. You know? Right. I'm sorry, Patrick. I sorry, Hart. I <laughs> intruded there, but I knew there was something else I wanted to tell Charles that I'd forgotten about the Philby part. I'm gonna have to watch that documentary. It sounds great. It really is worth watching, but not necessarily for Lacari. Uh, was was Graham Greene an influence on you, Charles? Yeah, no, huge, huge. Yeah. I mean, I think if uh, another if complicated me, figure. <laughs> say again. I said another very complicated figure. Yeah, very. Um, and I mean, it's sort of a genius, really, Green. You know, the, you read his life story, and was so productive, so full of stories, so full of work. And, and incredibly brave, you know, the, 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 the um, journeys he made into Africa as a young man and the, the, the traveling and the curiosity and, um, but just, just so high functioning, just, just churning out store, short stories, plays, novels, 500 words a day, every day for 70 years. I would love to have met him. I mean, I, I know somebody, actually it was Nicholas Shakespeare who, who wrote the Fleming biography. Nick knew, met Graham Greene a couple of times and said he was unbearable because he just spoke about himself all the time, which is often the case with these, with these um, huge literary figures. Um, but no, if you said to me, you have to take either Graham Greene's books to a desert island or Le Carre's books to a desert island, I would take Graham Greene. Why me? Just for the range, apart from anything else, you know, the... Um, also, I think that it, it, towards the end of, I've been a bit down on the character tonight. I, I mean, no disrespect to him, but um, I think in the, the latter half of Lacari's career, I think the, the quality really falls away and, and, and the voice changes and he becomes almost sort of camp. Um, and it's, whereas the earlier books right up to sort of Constant Gardner, they had a sort of much more subtlety. Um, you didn't hear Lacari so much behind the, behind the writing. Whereas Green was, was much more sort of, modest in a way and you know it's very i think it's almost impossible to find an interview a television interview with graham green he just never put himself in front of a camera like this or um and i like that about him and i like the fact that he you you don't really get a sense of him at all in the books apart from the tortured adultery and the tortured catholicism but but you, you um 
he he had uh, yeah just this extraordinary range of ideas and 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 characters and um, locales and um, different moods. And he was really an amazing writer. Do you have a favorite of his books? Yeah, the comedians I think is is amazing. The the Haiti book. Um, okay. And also, obviously, Brighton Rock and Power and the Glory and, and End of the Affairs, an amazing book. Um, I like that really strange one called The Ministry of Fear. Yes. Yeah. And that's quite early, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. he was, you know, he was obviously right there when the Blitz Blitz was occurring. And, yeah. and those, uh, those I know we're digressing, but those Norman Sherry biographies are really great. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, he he went. Norman Sherry went sort of mad, didn't he? Just sort of, he, he wanted to interview every waiter that had ever served Graham Greene a fried egg. You know, he sort of turned every page. The Robert Caro thing. You know, he's so industrious, and he went everywhere and sort of followed him around. Um, but yeah, no, he was he was um, he was remarkable. Before we leave this discussion, I also think it's really hard for anyone anyway who was around in the 90s to think about George Smiley without thinking about Alec Guinness. I mean, it you know, it's it just, I mean, I remember watching, you know, Guinness and the television. Of, um, and I think for many of us, you know, that sort of shaped the whole way that we read Le Carre was, was Guinness was so remarkable. I think, I think, I think Le Carre found it very difficult to write Smiley after Smiley's people because he just saw Guinness in his Alec mind. You could not um, only saw him, but hear him. You know, yeah. he had a very distinctive, you know, voice and so forth. In addition to everything about him. Yeah, but it's a good problem to have for a writer. You know, if I we we almost had Paul Mescal playing um, Alec Milius in my first book, Respired by Nature. He was all set to go, and then uh, Ridley Scott came along and offered him five times as much money to do Gladiator Two. So we lost him. But if um, if Paul Mescal had played Alec Milius in The Spy by Nature and maybe had done a sequel, The Spanish Game. I would have had, you know, no problem with that. <laughs> sort of trying to conjure up a third book with with Paul Mescal as as Milius, I would have I would have been fine. Anything else, Patrick? Yeah, there are more Carradine fans coming out of the woodwork. Ah. Yeah. So let's see the underdog. Um, I think. Uh, well, you've you've addressed some of these things. Um, Renee asks, so your protagonist ages throughout your books in kind of in real time vaguely yeah but um so box 88 starts in in 1989 so you see kite as an 18 year old he's recruited out of a school very closely resembling eton college um the famous school with tailcoats in england um mm -hmm. to spy on the family of his best friend and a villa in the south of france um so you see him on his first operation as still as a teenager and then in judah 62 you see him in Russia, as I've described, trying to extract this chemical weapons scientist from Voronezh. And in Kennedy 35, he's in his uh, mid-20s now in, in Dakar on the trail of this war criminal. But in each book, you also see Kite at broadly my age, so 50, 51, 52, um, looking back on those, those operations, and some of which have come back to haunt him. Um, and so you get, you get a sense, I hope, of, of how he has changed as a man as a as a spy as a father as a um as a husband um and i think that yeah the, the idea is that once all the books are done six seven eight books you'll there'll be a kind of yeah a magnum opus of, of, of lachlan kite's life from from age of 10 to the age of 60. why do you say why do you have a specific number what, of not of books mm -hmm. 
Because if I said, I don't know, if I said 10, it would just the prospect of it's too exhausting, Barbara. <laughs> okay. I mean, I didn't know if you had some giant overall story arc that, you no, know. No, I do. I've, I've got the last one. The last book, the last book is, is, the, is the Al Qaeda book, is the 9 11 book. Um, but so, so it's, it's a question of how many I do between where we are now, 95 and 2001. So it might be four more, three more, five more, six more. I just don't know. But you did. Know. You do have a capstone involved that you're writing towards. Yes. Got it. Okay. Yeah. That makes a difference. Yeah. No. So, so the the flashbacks will be the sort of bookend, if you like, is Berlin Wall, nine eleven. Got it. Will you continue with the uh, kind of the your your pattern of using the numbers and the, you know, Judas sixty two? I think I think so. I mean, I can see that people are going to get confused by them, but I think as long as the the principal word in the title Judas Kennedy box is is intriguing or striking enough. Uh, I think I'm I think I'm okay. I think to change now would be a bit odd. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, if I was going to change that, that now's the time to do it for, for four, five, six, but I think I'm just going to keep going. Yeah. Um, I think that's it for the questions. Wonderful. Well, I'm consumed with envy that you get to spend an evening with Joe Cannon. I haven't been up to New York. He keeps inviting me for dinner and I haven't been up to New York for, I've been with Joe through his entire career. He was oh, here wow. in Los Alamos. We have done every book wow. and, you know, he's just, I think a remarkable, I, he's a lovely person and yeah. I think a remarkable novelist. Um, same with Dan Fesperman, right, Patrick? We've been with Dan um, yeah. you know, all the way Dan's back. Great. Yeah, he is. Um, so I'm very happy that the spy novel is, you know. It's great seeing some women kind of coming forth. That's too. very Alma, true, too. Alma and, and Kathleen Kent, my friend. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember, Joe and I did the did the interview for the debut author and right. Joe, Anna, whatever her name is, but Joe really liked her book. And so he and I, we've done a lot of Zooms together with, you know, about other authors because he's a wonderful reader. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I have this theory that uh, the the best people, the 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 most talented people in in the arts, film directors or actors or writers, are always the nicest people, and it's the second rate writers and the second rate directors and the second rate who are who, who are less sympathetic. Should we put it that way? I see. Well, that definitely puts Charles in the rank of <laughs> way up there because you are super nice, Charles. It's always been a pleasure to talk to you. For those of you who've watched this who didn't catch us when we did Judas 88 next time, you can actually go to YouTube and you can find Charles and um, Patrick and I discussing uh, Judas 62. 82. Yeah, or 60, okay. sorry, 62, box okay. 88. Anyway. Yes, we're getting confused with the numbers already. I know, but it's great to have this archive, you know, where, where it's possible to uh, have these conversations and then people can can find them. Yeah. So but but before we more. go, I just want to say a huge thanks to both of you for your support and for selling the books. And it's hugely appreciated and a great pleasure to talk to you both again. Well, we, we appreciate it a lot. And maybe, you know, before this is done, we can get you all the way to Scottsdale. I'm happy to tell you there's a nonstop British air flight from Heathrow to Phoenix every day. And is there? Absolutely. Oh, okay. Funnily enough, I'm working on something which might require me to come to, to Arizona. So, uh, uh, yeah, fingers crossed. Well, and it doesn't have to be with a book. Should you decide to do a research trip or something, just let us yeah. know. We'd no, be... it would be research. It would be research. Yeah, yeah. No, that'd be wonderful. We'd love to have you. There's always that opportunity. Anyway, you're off to enjoy dinner and I'm off to 
corral the puppies and Patrick's off to close the bookstores. So thank you all very much for watching. Thank you so much. If we don't see you, let me wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving that is watching this, celebrating it however you wish to. And for us pilgrims anyway. Yeah, right. everybody. Thanks for joining us. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks very much, guys. Bye. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.